0: No son, with God, anything is possible. Good, mo- Good morning! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is, uh, it is an honor and privilege for me to be here, and I'm not saying that just because I'm a guest pastor, uh, but Pastor Darren um, has just become um, just a great friend. It's amazing what can happen through Twitter, and uh, when you're attempting to plant a church that's multi-ethnic and multi-generational, there ain't a lot of places that you can go, and so when I see it on Twitter... What Heartland was about, I'm like, I need to get to know him because you guys are where we are going, and, and so a part of me being here is to absorb everything and learn, also to uh, just continue to encourage our relationship. You have a, a, a fantastic pastor, and so I'm honored to uh, to know him. And happy birthday, twelfth birthday! You know. Um, of church plants don't make it, and you guys are 12 years old. You've planted five churches. You've got campuses, and, and, and there are more things on the horizon for God to accomplish through you individually and corporately as a body. So now that we got that done, over, let's get to work. Check this out. You and I, God's people, we have God accomplishments with our names tattooed on them. We have God accomplishments with our names tattooed on them. And these God accomplishments are for God's glory so that his story can extend through every corner of this earth. Now, Transformation Church, we're multi-generational. So sixth grade and above, you're in service with us. If my daughter in sixth grade could program my phone, she could listen to a sermon. So teenagers and preteens, I'm going to talk to you as well. There are God accomplishments with your name on them as well. You don't have to wait till you're 45, have a midlife crisis, to realize that Jesus is the greatest treasure that we could ever possess. His mission is the greatest thing that we could ever pursue. But here's the deal, though those God accomplishments will go unrealized because we have a label that limits us. And that label is called being afraid, it's called fear that we will end up living a woulda, coulda, shoulda, but didn't do a kind of life because we were afraid to risk because of the label of fear that is tattooed in our souls. Now, perhaps you're saying, well, Derwin, you, you know, you, you played for the Colts. By the way, it's good to see a lot of Colt jerseys. My man even rocking a Quentin Corriott jersey. Y'all don't even know who Quentin Coryat is. Don't worry about it. But I know a lot about fear and, 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 Most of it was not because of football players. As a matter of fact, I used to love to launch my body like a human torpedo into 300-pound men. I longed for it. Like on Friday and then Saturday night, my whole demeanor changed, my focus, everything, because I was preparing. So I wasn't afraid of another football player. I was afraid of the executives that worked in the front office, the little skinny guys. You know why? Why? Because they had the pink slip, and the pink slip would say, you can't play anymore. And my identity was found in what I did, so if I couldn't do what I did anymore, who would I be? I would be a nobody, and that terrified me. Matter of fact, for uh, a lot lot of you moms, if you're not careful, when your kids hit 18 and they go off to college, you have poured your identity into them, and when they're gone... You don't even know who you are and you don't even know who your husband is because you've idolized those kids. And now that they're gone and they're happy that they're gone, you're lost. And and then for a lot of you men with this recession, you lost your job and you lost who you were because we attach our hearts to false idols that make promises that they can never keep. Jesus is the only one that satisfies so what we're going to talk about today is uh, the sermons entitled Risk, the Testing of a Limitless Life. I think it's from like page 9 or 10 from my book. So so here's the context. The nation of Israel is God's missionary people. They are his chosen people. They exist to be in love with God so much so that the world that does not know the one true God would go, I want that. I, I, I want what they have. So they're in the promised land. And there's a group of people called The Philistines. And the Philistines wanted to destroy and enslave the nation of Israel. If that happens, a very special person does not come. That very special person is Jesus. All of history climaxes at the point of Jesus Christ. Theologians call that redemptive history. Why is that important to us in 2013? It's important for us to know that history, which is his story, means this that you and I are in. God's story he's not in ours and there's a lot of Christians who are very frustrated because they want God to fit into their story it doesn't work that way we are in his story for his glory and as we get that that's when we get joy and transformation and have the power to risk so Israel's on one side of the mountain nation of Israel's on the other side I mean, uh, the Philistines are on the other side. And the Philistines have a champion. His name's Goliath. Think Shaquille O'Neal, Mike Tyson. Before Mike Tyson started biting people's ears. Okay? He comes out to the valley. He defies Israel's. He challenges them. King Saul and the rest of the men are like, we're not going to go fight him. Did you see that, dude? So here's the context. 1 Samuel 17, 23 through 27. All the men of Israel... When they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Let's pause here. What giant right now has you much afraid and causing you to flee? Oftentimes we study the Bible, but really we need to let the Bible study us. For some of you husbands... Maybe your giant is greater degrees of intimacy with your wife. Intimacy into me you see. You are just quite holding back. She's not all the way in because you're afraid of vulnerability. For some of you, it's various kinds of addiction. I don't know what your giant is. I've got my giant. For some of you teenagers and preteens, your giant is peer pressure. You know that if you follow a certain crew, a certain group, that's going to put you in direct opposition of Jesus. And that giant is, am I going to follow Jesus and be made fun of, or am I going to be with everybody else and just fit right on in? We all got giants. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Okay, that's, that's funny. They're like, so what's going to happen if you kill the giant? The king will give you some money, and you get his daughter. Okay, I don't know if this happened, but what if the dudes were like, man, she ugly. I ain't going to fight the giant. Hey, you can keep your money. Because I do not want her. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I ain't going for man. The giant prettier than her. <laughs> and David said to the men who stood by, teenagers, notice who just spoke there, David. David, 16 or 17, right there. David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the name, the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. So teenagers, please notice, King David wasn't playing Xbox. He wasn't playing call to duty. He was trying to transform the world. Don't get me wrong. I play a little NBA 2K13 with my 13-year-old son on occasion. But I also want to train him up that when he leaves this planet, that it's better because he existed. So notice, this is a teenage boy challenging the men to stand up for the glory of God. We need some teenagers and preteens to challenge us old folks to stand up for the glory of God. God has used teenagers all throughout history. Not only David, but think about it, Mary. She's like 13 or 12 when God entrusted into her womb the Savior of the world. All of Jesus' disciples were most likely teenagers but Peter. The gospel tells us that Peter and Jesus had to pay a tax. The other guys didn't. The implication is they were teenagers. So God used pimpled-faced teenagers to transform the world. So parents, what are you telling your teenagers to do? Go to college, get a good job, get a lot of debt, be stressed, and then you die. (laughs) I mean, we're not telling them that, but is that what we're modeling? Or do we look at our kids and we say, today the living God of the universe will live and breathe in you, that today your school can be different, that the future can be different, that the present can be different because of the God who lives and breathes and moves in you and that you don't have to go in the direction that everybody else is going in. Now, parents, before we start clapping, we've got to embodiment. We have to embody it. I don't care what Christian school you send your kids to. Theological lessons are caught, not taught whoop, there it is. Okay, let me move on, let me move on. Uh, Okay, so we're talking about risk. We're talking about fear. I was afraid to plant a church because becoming a pastor means you're vulnerable. I mean, God bless you, Pastor Darren, for doing as long as you have I mean, you, you pray for people, you, you think about people, you baptize them, you marry them, then they leave because there's a cooler church down the street. And it hurts. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, no, no, no. My formative years growing up taught me that the closer that people got to you, the easier it is for them to hurt you. So I learned at an early age from my family experience, I'm going to lock my heart in a cage, and Derwin has the key, And I'm hiding it. So even when I came to Jesus, even in my early years of my marriage, I kept my wife and everybody else far apart. I came to faith through a teammate with the Colts. His name was Steve Grant, number 59. But he had a nickname. His nickname was the Naked Preacher. Because every day after practice, Steve would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist and get his Bible. And he'd walk through the locker room like this, just the way he'd walk. I don't make this up, it's the way he'd walk. And then he'd go to my teammate's locker and he'd say, do you know Jesus? I didn't grow up in the church, I didn't own a Bible, and in my mind I'm going, do you know you're half naked? (laughs) Hence his nickname, the naked preacher. Over a five-year process, I watched him embody the gospel, he shared the gospel with me. And through life circumstances, achieving everything but having nothing, not being able to forgive my father, not being able to forgive myself, not being able to love my wife, living with fear and anxiety. On August second, uh, August second, nineteen ninety-seven, about an hour from here in Anderson College, after lunchtime, I went to the dorm room. I called my wife and said, "I want to be committed to you, and I want to be committed to Jesus." And at that moment. The best way I can describe it is there was a physical reaction, a physical change. I knew that I was loved. I knew that I was loved not based on how fast I could run to 40. Not based on how, I, how high I could jump. I wasn't loved based on my performance. As a matter of fact, I was loved in spite of my performance. It was unconditional. Now, if you've grown up in the church and you've heard, Jesus loves me, and it does nothing to your heart, you won't hear nothing greater than than, than that. I I have an advanced master's degree. I'm starting a doctorate. I, I learn all kind of stuff. But this is what moves my heart the most. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I knew that I was loved. And at that moment, I was infected with this virus called grace. And the symptoms have gotten better ever since that on that cross, when Jesus hung there, it was as though God the Father was saying, run home, son. Run to my heart. Run to the love that you have been created for. A couple of years began to go by. I'm in this newfound faith, and you crazy Christians begin to tell me stuff like, you should be a pastor. And I was like, no, I shouldn't be. (laughs) And the reason why is I was afraid. I was afraid to risk being hurt. But eventually, God taught me, That it's better to love and be hurt than not love at all. Eventually, God taught me, son, I know a lot about loving and being hurt. People reject my son every second of every day. But then there are those few that embrace his grace, and it's worth it. So on August 2nd, 2000, uh, I'm sorry, September 7th, sorry, February 7th, 2010, we eventually planted Transformation Church. So check this out. God teaches us that the greatest risk we'll ever take is not taking one. The greatest risk we'll ever take is not taking one. Goliath seemed superior to David on all fronts. He was, he was bigger. He was stronger. He had more experience. So, so what was it in David that made this teenage boy think that he could actually win? this is what I think. I believe that God longs for his people to pray prayers and attempt things that only Jesus could get credit for accomplishing. I'm going to preach now, okay? My voice is going to go up. Don't be afraid. I'm I'm not going to tackle anybody. (laughs) I think that one of the great crimes in the body of Christ is that we've got it all together. We've got our 501ks, and then and, and, uh, and, I mean uh, uh, 401ks, 429bs, IRAs. We got our great insurance, we've got our 10 year plan. And Jesus is like, Okay, you got it together. So I'm gonna go over here in Africa where they live in garbage dumps, and when they pray to me, I'm gonna show up. I think that we got it so together that we don't really need Jesus. So, what we have to do is put ourselves in position for Him to show up and show off, to leverage what we do have so that we don't become dependent on it, but we become dependent on Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it say our lives are to be safe. That's not the goal. Read the Bible. It is filled with adventure and danger and moments where you go, God, if you don't show up, it's not going to happen. And he's longing for his people to pray prayers and attempt things that only he can accomplish. Right now, what are you attempting that only he can accomplish? As a church, you're in year 12. God has planted five churches through you. You probably got another 15 or 20 ahead of you. But it's going to require crazy, ridiculous risk. The kind of risk that when you tell people what your church is trying to do or what you're trying to do individually, people go, (laughs) you're serious. Wow. A lot of us are frustrated with Jesus, and he's going, well, do you really need me? You seem to have it together pretty good. I will never, ever go back to living the way I lived before we planted Transformation Church. So my wife and I, eventually, God gave us the courage to plant this church. We said it's going to be a multi-ethnic church where black people, white people, Latino people, Asian people, people who are black and white at the same time, young and old, and everybody, we're going to come together, kind of like the Bible says to do. And, and um, don't do this. Don't do what I'm going to say to do next. We found a warehouse because we couldn't find anywhere else to go, and we didn't have enough money. So I signed it anyway. I signed the lease anyway. It's like, Lord, you, you better show up or I'm going to jail. And Jesus, well, people in jail need Jesus too. I was on my way. <laughs> so eventually we get to February 7, 2010, and uh, in our planning, I said, you know what, guys? We're going to launch with two services. In my heart, I'm going, risk. In my mind, I'm going, dude, you don't even have enough people for one service. And then I said this, you ever say something and you want to catch it and put it back in your mouth? I said, and we're going to launch two services. I'm going, get it back. Get it back. We didn't have enough people, right? Um, Heart's going, yes. Mind's going, no. February 7th comes up. And I'm like, Lord, give us 700 people. I didn't know that 700 people don't come to a church plant. No one told me that in the church planning rules. I didn't know that 700 people don't come to a brand new church. My heart's like, 700. My mind's like, no. At the end of the second service, my executive pastor sat down. He was crying. His lip was quivering. And he says, uh, Pastor, 701 people came. And ever since that moment, we've been one of the 100 fastest growing churches in America. We are an anomaly. A black lead, yeah, yeah, that's something, yeah, we can clap about that. Um, uh, I'm black if you haven't noticed. Um, Black lead pastor, congregation about 60% white, 40% everything else. We're an anomaly. We're not even supposed to exist, let alone being one of the 100 fastest growing churches in America. Our first year, we were the second fastest growing church in America by percentage. That's not supposed to happen, but I just wonder if God blessed that ridiculous and crazy risk. Hey, what's your 701 moment? What's your outrageous, ridiculous risk? What's your outrageous and ridiculous risk for your church? And I know Pastor Darren, so he's going to have some outrageous things for you guys to accomplish so that only Jesus gets the glory. It's so worth it. It is so worth it. We learned that the afraid label limits us. The courageous label unleashes God in us. So David wasn't even supposed to really even be going to fight. His daddy, Jesse, said, go check on your brothers. So David hopped on his camel with the chrome rims, put on his Dr. Dre Beats audios, and was rolling down the desert. <laughs> he stops on the way and picks up a Happy Meal for his brothers, and he shows up. And he's like, hey, uh, men of Israel, do you hear this giant defying our God? They're like, yeah. He's like, "Why well, aren't you all going to? do something. Well, the men of Israel got comfortable in their fear. Hey, have you and I gotten comfortable in our fear? Well, this is the marriage I'm going to have. This is just the way it is. That's just the way he is. I'm fine with him having an affair with his corporate job. Uh, This addiction is just just the way it is. So have we gotten comfortable in our fear? I know I have at times. Also, when we attempt outrageous, mind-blowing things for God's glory, expect resistance and discouragement. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 28. Now, Elab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So David's oldest brother heard when... David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Okay, I love the Bible. I'm like, dude, are you serious? There's a giant that wants to kill you, and you're worried about your brother who wants to fight the giant because he's not taking care of a few sheep. Here's the Derwin Gray translation. David, you're embarrassing me. I'm the oldest brother. I should have your courage, but I'm being a coward. You're humiliating me. Therefore, I'm going to tear you down because you're doing something I should do. So you do know that when you attempt to do something that others should do, you're going to get resistance. You're going to get discouragement, but you use that as fuel. That's exactly what David got. Teenagers, my senior year in high school, I had a, three schools that offered me football scholarships. Brigham Young, which is a Mormon school in Utah, Texas Christian Uni- University, and Kansas State. I decided to go to BYU. And a lot of my Latino and African-American friends said, don't go, because you know how those people think about us. And BYU was 99.999% white, but a different kind of whiteness, a Mormon whiteness. Um, and so I um, had a great experience there, a great education. Um, but my teammates shunned me. They called me a sellout. I took a risk. If I would have listened, January 15th, 1990, wouldn't have happened. Now, for you historian buffs, you know that's Dr. King's birthday, but January 15th is a little bit more important to me. Dr. King's birthday is important, but this day is more important because that's the day that I met my boo, my wife. My Vicky, the javelin thrower on the track team. It's the first day I met her. We've been married 21 years now. Yeah. We have two wonderful children. We've walked through cancer together. That woman has loved me to be the man that I am today. My best friend. I don't hang out with a lot of dudes. I'm like, I don't hang out with you. I'm hanging out with my wife. It's my best friend. We're friends, ministry partners, the love of my life. I'm like, Lord, I ain't asking for much, but can we just die together like at 118? Like, children, goodbye. See you in heaven. Love that woman. But what if I would have listened to the ellipse? who gave me discouragement. What God accomplishments have our names on it, but we're listening to people instead of God. You're going to be called to give sacrificially. You're going to be called to reach more people for Christ. You you might even be called to be a part of a new campus. I don't even know what that looks like individually, but all of us are going to be at the precipice of discouragement and faith and risk. God teaches us that his past faithfulness empowers us to take risk. Think of these, those nights where David was taking care of sheep, and all of a sudden a lion or a bear came to get the sheep. David got his slingshot and would kill a lion or bear. See, God's presence and provision, his faithfulness in that moment empowered David that when he went to go fight the giant, he ran towards him and said, I come in the name of the Lord of armies. How did he do that? Because in those moments of obscurity, in those moments in the past, he's seen God's faithfulness. You see, God's faithfulness in our past empowers us to be courageous in the present. It empowers us to go into a future that seems unknown, but we got to remember, we're holding of the, the hand of the one who do know. How's God been faithful to you in the past? As a church, it's obvious. It's going to require risk. But how's he been faithful to you individually? Uh, I'm going through a season of just um, really thanking God for his faithfulness. I mean, the very fact that I'm here in Fishers. In 1993, when I signed a contract with the Colts, our first apartment was in Fishers. But it didn't look like this. There was like Psalms Restaurant. Is that still around? We used to go there. It was like a car wash. And now I come back and I go, what is this place? I didn't know Jesus in 1993. Now in 2013, I'm here preaching Jesus. I'm thankful for God's faithfulness. I'm thankful for his faithfulness in that I grew up as a compulsive stutterer up until the age of 26. And then when I met Jesus, he touched my mouth and said, I've got a song I want you to sing. There's a message I want you to declare. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I come from a family where two teenagers had me but had enough sense to let their grandmother, to let their mom raise me. What are you thankful for? By the way, a grateful heart is so much more appreciative of the little things. Sometimes as Americans, we're so entitled. Oh, the air conditioner doesn't work. Most of the world don't even got a car. What are you thankful for? Because Jesus' past faithfulness will give us power in the future. Let's take a step back. This story of David and Goliath is, is really about Jesus. David is a type of Christ. Goliath is a type and Israel is a type. Think about it. David is a shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. David was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. David killed Goliath. Jesus killed our Goliath. You know what our Goliath is? Sin, death, and evil. And guess who's Israel in this story? Me and you. We're sitting on the hill going, I can't defeat sin. Anybody here perfect? So you can't defeat sin. Why is it that a two-year-old learns to say, no, and mine? Who teaches them that? Why don't they come out like, yes, Father, I shall obey thee. Why do we have to teach them to be good? Why are they born bad? That's sin. All of us are broken. Jesus defeated sin on the cross. One out of one people die. Jesus defeated Death when he rose from the dead. And Jesus defeated evil through his resurrection and ascension. That one day all evil will be obliterated and destroyed. But until that day, you and I join Jesus in being light and darkness, being beautiful in the midst of an ugly world, given a foretaste of that great day to come. That's what this story is really about. We can take risk. Because of Jesus. Here's our soul tattoo. Soul tattoo is what I say at Transformation Church for us to get the big idea. Here it is. Risk whatever God is telling you to risk for his glory. What is it? It may be relationally. I don't know who this is for, but it may be for a, uh, a 20-something female. You're like 25, and you're like, I keep meeting the same guy in the same club, just different names. Well, it's time for you to risk and think that Jesus is enough because ultimately we attract the people to come towards us. What messages are we sending? Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That through God the Father saying, I'm giving you my son. And as a result of faith in my son, I'm giving you my spirit. I'm giving you the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm giving you everything that you need to be a giant killer. I'm giving it to you by grace. All you need to do is have risk, which is another word for faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these precious people. I thank you on this 12th anniversary birthday for Heartland Church that, that, that greater things are to come. And that you're going to call them as individuals and you're going to call them collectively as a church to risk, to give sacrificially and generously, to reach the lost, to just do epic and profound things that the city of Indianapolis and Fishers would go, are you kidding? This is epic. Do that, Lord, for your glory. And next, I I, want to pray for those of you who are are saying, you know what, Pastor Derwin, uh, I want to know Jesus the way you described him. Maybe you're here and you know you're not a Christian, or, or, or maybe you've been away from the church for a while. Maybe you don't know what's happening. Maybe it's like you on August 2nd, 1997, like for me, you're just tired of being sick and tired, and you're ready to find rest in Jesus. If that's you, you're ready to commit your life to him in the silence of your heart, say this to him. Jesus, I'm ready. I believe that you're the giant killer, that you killed sin on the cross. You killed death when you rose from the dead, and you killed evil when you ascended on high. And by faith, I choose to believe in you. By faith, you are my God, Savior, and King, and I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.